talking about this whole idea of sacred space. And this morning, if you are just checking out God, perhaps you have come along because someone else has invited you or dragged you, or perhaps you've been a Jesus follower for a long period of time, and you're wondering, is God interested in my life? Is he interested in my world? Well, over the last uh, six weeks, we've been telling a story, re-narrating a story, which I believe is God's story. That God wants to be profoundly involved in this world, his creation, and the human story, ours. You see, we live in a flat world because um, science and technology, we are told and have told a story that says, all there is is here and now. There is nothing more than what we have. We are just material beings and we are just made up of molecules. And over the last six weeks, I've been saying, yes, that world is the world in which you and I might inhabit, but it doesn't tell every part of the story. There's more aspects and dynamics to who we are as human beings. There seems to be a longing, a yearning in the human heart for more. And so I believe that in this flat world narration, we can be telling, I can be telling, the Bible tells another story about a God who desires to be present to people because that's what he is like. He is made and he loves to dwell. So over the past number of weeks, we have talked about God being present to human beings. And in those creation stories, those first seminal stories, there's this idea of God being present. And he he made human beings to partner with him in, if you like, bringing his order to the chaos, bringing his light to the darkness. And we've discovered two profound truths. The first one is this, is that there is a God who desires to dwell There's a God, the creator and the maker of the universe, the one who is other, who is very different and unique to who we are. He is different to us, but yet he desires to dwell and to be present. Why? Because when he is present in human beings' lives, human beings flourish. That is that when human beings don't mistrust God, but when they open up their lives to him, he profoundly in his presence comes and dwells within them and they flourish, if you like. His wisdom starts to manifest in their lives. His thinking starts to inhabit their bodies. His way of viewing the world, if you like, his kingdom, his presence, his reign, becomes manifest and ruling in their bodies and their minds such that they do things like Dale has been doing in redistributing and thinking differently about their world. But we've also discovered that, if you like, not only do those human beings with God can shine, but there's a problem as well. And the problem is that is twofold, is that human beings are unlike God. They are mortal, that is, their bodies are subject to decay and disease. I know that. When I was about 14, I used to bounce easily. Now that I'm a little bit older than that, I find there's times when I wake up in the morning and it takes a little while to get going. In fact, I find that I have aches and pains in my body that I never used to have when I was younger. I used to just bounce. The fact that I also wear glasses when I read now remind me that I inhabit a mortal body that is subject to decay. And that's one of the problems. That's the difference I have to God is immortal and I am mortal. But furthermore, that I'm subject also to moral, uh, if you like, failure. There's a part of me that wants to say to God, I want to rule myself, I want to please myself, and I want to serve myself. And that's also running through my veins as well. And so what we've discovered in these creation accounts is that when God gave those first human beings the chance to determine right and wrong, good and evil for themselves, they chose, if you like, to push God's idea about good and evil away and determine it for themselves. 
read the newspaper in the morning time or any time during the day and you discover that human beings typically do really badly when it comes to determining good and evil for themselves and the chaos that can ensure. And so there's been this problem. God wants to dwell with humanity, with his creation, but at the same time, there's a problem. In fact, that's even manifest more so. We've discovered over the last number of weeks that the closer you get to God, if you like, the blemishes show. (laughs) It's not that human beings are all bad. It's just that God is so intensely good that when you draw closer to an intensely good, powerful other God, if you like, the guilt and the grime show, the blemishes are more manifest. And so what was God to do? He wants to dwell amongst people, but yet at the same time, how can he without there being a problem? And so over the last week or two, we've discovered that he had a provision. And it was called this thing called sacrifice, which is kind of unnerving to the modern mindset, but makes perfect sense in other cultures today around the globe, but also in those ancient cultures. You see, through the provision of, if you like, some sacrifices of of animals and what was done with the carcass and the blood, it allowed, if you like, these two issues to be dealt with quite well. That is, that if you took the blood of the animal and you rubbed it on certain parts of the altars in those sacred spaces, or even at times on your earlobe or your thumb or your foot, according to what the nature of the ritual or the sacrifice was about, we discovered actually that that blood was like an ancient detergent that used to wash away blemishes and stains so that the holy God could dwell amongst the mortal human beings. Over the past number of years, um, I've looked at my marble basin in our bathroom and I've lamented the fact that someone made a device called a hair straightening wand. (laughs) Have anyone here come into conflict with a hair straightening (laughs) wand? And I can tell you that I do not use this wand myself. But it does a magical thing, apparently. It takes normally curly hair and makes it profoundly straight. If you apply it for about seven hours, it can transform your life. But what it also did in my bathroom is that it transformed the marble as well. You see, someone left it not on the sort of the plastic weighting device, but they sort of rested it on the marble. And the the problem with marble is that it's incredibly porous. And so when you leave a hot device for a long period of time on marble, it leaves a stain. Well, I have tried everything. And they they tell you, they tell you, marble is porous, only use water and a little bit detergent. They always tell you that. So this week, I said, that is it. I'm going to get rid of this stain come high water or whatever. And so I got this other sort of agent called GIF, which is a cream cleanser. It's a cutting device as well as a whitening device. You can use it on your teeth if you want. Kids, don't do that. And I poured this GIF stuff on this marble, this porous marble, and I scrubbed and I scrubbed and I scrubbed hard. And do you know what happened? The stain was removed. I want to tell you, I could start up my own company right now in porous cleaning marble devices is that the stains were removed. 
And the profound gift, if you like, of this understanding of sacrifices that Jesus and his sacrifice in his blood, if you like, it can smear in your life. It can act as a ritual detergent that wipes away blemishes and stains because that is what it does. But the problem with the whole provision of this sacrificial system is like Dale was explaining to us about car maintenance. It was just a maintenance for cars. You see, you buy, you buy a brand new car and that car doesn't last forever. It is subject to two problems. The first one is decay. The wheels wear, the joints erode. If you like, the electronic circuitry breaks down. It is a mortal car. And the second thing that is also part of the problem with driving a car is the operator itself. In fact, there's a problem with the operator. You might try as best as you can, but through weakness and sometimes willfulness, the car is damaged and you need it to be fixed. Many years ago, I remember the our, uh, before OH&S was brought in that sort of rippled through the, those, uh, the, all of the institutions, that is operational health and safety, I remember youth group activities that were not governed by those laws. In fact, youth group was a whole lot more exciting back then and because it was a whole lot more dangerous. I remember our youth group coming back from, it would have been Ocean Grove on one sunny, warm afternoon. We were driving back on the Eastern Freeway and there was one particular car that had a carload of kids and it was a Toyota Tarago, the best car to be in at that time because this one had a sunroof. And so as you were driving along the Eastern Freeway, it was quite possible for youth group kids to be sticking their heads out of the sunroof as the driver was driving along. And the story goes, true story, is that traveling at 100 kilometers an hour, the driver in that moment decided, what would happen if I pulled the handbrake at 100 on the Eastern? And so he did, in a moment of weakness and willfulness, pulled the handbrake and it jammed. And on the, oh, no, 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 it was fun because this is what youth group was about. He pulled the handbrake and it jammed. And in that moment, he said there was chaos in the car. What was orderly became disorderly. And as it span around in 360 degrees on the eastern freeway, getting really close to the edges, as kids pushed themselves back in under the, under the, and strapped themselves in the car and it came to a rest and no one was damaged at all, we discovered that day on the eastern freeway that there was a problem with our failed morality is that human beings have this problem of weakness sometimes and willfulness and yes it's true that that man now is a minister and a pastor of another church here in Melbourne and I can let you know about him and take it to him but as a result of that I think that the government brought in occupational health and safety as a result of that youth group experience but God provides for that he provided a system that would cover wrongs, deal with guilt, and wash people clean. But the only problem with that was that it was just a maintenance program. It could not transform the human heart. And so simultaneously rippling throughout these ancient stories, God made a promise. He made a promise that someone would come, some leader some king, some priest, some prophet, some servant that would come and transform the human heart from the inside out. 
So there didn't need to be a maintenance of the partnership with, between God and humanity, but that it would actually transform it in such a powerful way that it would radically fulfill it and reenact it and rejuvenate it from the inside out. And this story ripples through the ancient stories, a promise that God made to Abraham and God made to Moses and continued it on until one day, A man by the name of John, who had been following a man called Jesus all of his life, that had seen Jesus at work, that had heard the words of Jesus himself, that had beheld his splendor, and that had followed him for three and a half years of his life. He'd seen his life, and he'd seen him die tragically, and he'd seen him come back to life in invisible human present form, but transformed. Near the end of his life, he takes pen to parchment, and he begins to write these words. And if you have a Bible with you and you want to follow with me, it's John chapter 1. Because near the end of John's life, he takes pen, and he starts to write about this person. That God had been promising for so long. And he writes these words. In the beginning was the word. And the word was close beside God. And the word was God. In the beginning he was close beside God. And automatically when we hear these words. When I hear these words. He wanted to transport you back to the original creation stories. And we resonate in that sense of in the beginning. And we hear those words, that that was the same words that were used in the beginning when God made and created. And so what he's trying to do is take Jesus now and re-narrate the creation story with him front and center. But then simultaneously, we're confused and we scratch our heads because we wonder, what is he talking about this word, the word? What is this word? Because when God spoke all those, that time passed, things happened. When God spoke, he gave his order and his wisdom. So who is this word? What is the word? Because he seems to be talking about it like it's a being, like it's a person, like it's living. It's not just an abstract idea. And so he presses on and he says this, all things came into existence through him. This word, this wisdom and this word, this power He's describing and pointing and saying that this word is actually none other than him, the Jesus that I have come to see and that I have beheld and that I have witnessed and that I have observed and that I have followed and I have have held. And he says, not one thing that exists came into existence without him. And he says, life was in him and this life was the light of the human race. And the light shines in the darkness and the darkness did not overcome it. And all of a sudden, when we read these words, our minds are just expanded. If you like, they break all the circuitry. Because now John is taking this person, Jesus, and he's saying, I tell you, that not only was this person, Jesus, living present with me, but he was there from the very beginning with God, alongside God. I tell you, he was God. And even more so that this was the one through all things became created and were made, both in heavens and on the earth, in the cosmos, in the seen and the unseen. He was the one who got the whole thing going. 
And he said, as a result of this, the one I look at and the one that I saw, this man isn't just a man. He's like a God man. He is fully God and fully human. And he is completely integrated as one. He said, I don't quite get it. I don't quite understand it. I don't quite know how it works. But in him was light and his life shone profoundly. And then he presses it even deeper and further because he writes these words in 14. And the word became flesh and lived among us. That word, akinison, is the same word that has meaning for every Aussie, every Christmas that heads to the bush or the beach. Because many Aussies that head to the bush or the beach every Christmas do exactly this. They get a tent And they get tent pegs and they drive them into the ground and they set up a tent and then they dwell in it right in the midst of everyone else in campgrounds and beaches and bush settings all throughout Victoria and Australia. And he said, that is exactly what this man Jesus did. He actually, if you like, came as the word and embodied human flesh. And it's like he set up his tent, which has allusions to the the temple or the tabernacle roving in the wilderness. But this one was a remote moving one that dwelt among people. And enfleshed itself in human body. And he'd say, I don't quite get it. I don't quite understand it. It's blown all of my circuitry. But I tell you, I have seen him. And he is like no one else I have ever met before. Some people would say, well, if he's God, how can you look upon him and not be fried? He says, well, apparently he was veiled in human flesh. Which meant you could get up close to him. And what was he like? Well, John goes on. And he says, I want to tell you about Jesus. And he continues to write these stories about how people, when they saw Jesus, they were just attracted to him. That he was like the representation of God that you just could not imagine was unfathomable. Many years ago, I heard... A scientist, a a microbiologist, a geneticist from Washington State University talked to me about spider's webs. (laughs) He said, you might look at a spider's web and go, why on earth would a fly want to fly into that web? I mean, it's just like some web. I mean, you see these webs on the morning dew and they hang off them and you just see these white threads. Why on earth would a fly want to fly into something like that? He says, you and I might see that thing and just see it as some spiders webbing. And when we see it, we just detour and and walk away from it. Why doesn't a fly do exactly the same thing? He said, you don't understand insects. He says, we might look at that through our own vision and just see some webbing. But he says, under ultraviolet light, when you look at that web, what you discover is not just a normal threading web. It's a magnificent flowering, colorful flower. He said, that's why they fly in there. It's because through their eyes, it's shining and it's radiant and they might be over here and yet they're attracted to it and they fly into it. And as John is talking about this person, Jesus, it's as though they've, he says, they saw him with different eyes. There were some people who looked at Jesus and as they got closer to him, it, 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 it showed up their blemishes, and so they ran away. But he said, but other people, when they came close to Jesus, 
It's as though they saw who he was and the profound gentleness and love and life of God. It was like a light to them and they were attracted like flies to a web. So that's what it was like. And so the gospel writers, the good news account writers, they tell these profound stories about Jesus. It says once there was, uh, Matthew records, Jesus was exhausted from all of his ministry and he, he jumped into a boat and he said to his disciples, let's row on the other side of the, of, the, of the lake. And he says he started to row and you could just imagine this in your mind's eye. And as he was rowing, the people saw him, it says. And so what, the, what did they do? Because they were so attracted to Jesus, they began to run on the side of the lake to try and keep up with him. And so Monty Python would do a great one of this. As as Jesus then is rowing to try and have some rest, (laughs) the people are running faster along the side. So you can see Jesus rowing to try and get away, but they're running along the side until when he got to the other side, the people were already there. He says he looked at them and they brought their sick to him and he healed them because that's what he's like. That's what he was like. There were 10 lepers were described that came running to Jesus. They'd heard that he was a miracle worker. And they called out in their uncleanness, you can make us clean. And he said to them, yes, I hear what you're saying. Now go to the priests and, and, and offer up the sacrifices. And he says, 10 of them ran away and they discovered that they were clean. They'd been cured. One of them came back to him and, and fell before him, a foreigner, and said, you're amazing. Thank you. And he said, your faith has made you well. He would respond to human need and human desire and capacity. He said that they were like, if you like, thy insects were being attracted to him and just a whiff of faith would, would be enough for Jesus to respond in loving kindness and goodness. One time Jesus is having a dinner party and he's in a room and there's a bunch of religious people there and there's a woman who enters into that room and everyone knows who this woman is. She's one of the women who's been leading a whole bunch of men astray because she's a prostitute who has somehow heard about Jesus and she comes into a mealtime and she slinks around the side and the back and she comes up to Jesus with a perfume that she's probably used in her own trade and she comes up beside his feet that would have been sitting outwardly to the meal and she begins to pick them up and anoint them with her perfume and rub it in. And as she's down there anointing his feet with, with this perfume, the other people in the room are just disgusted. They think this is just pitiful. In fact, one of them says in their own mind, if Jesus really is the man who we thought he was, if he was a prophet, he'd know who this woman is and he wouldn't want anything to do with her. And this woman, as she's so close to his feet, she begins to weep. And she starts to cover his feet with her tears. And then she's so overwhelmed with it, she lets her hair down, which is even more provocative in that culture, and begins to wipe his feet with her hair. And it's just a mess. And Jesus turns to one of the religious persons and says, Simon, when I came into your house, you didn't anoint me with oil, which is customary. You didn't have anyone wash my feet. But this woman, she's anointed my feet with not only her perfume, but with her tears, and she has washed them. I tell you, this woman, she has been forgiven much. You see, this woman would have heard Jesus walking around as the living tent, the one was if dwelling among them in flesh, and 
would have heard his message that no matter who you are, no matter where you've been, no matter what you've done or has been done to you, there's a God and he loves you and his kingdom is coming to earth right now in me. Jesus is operating like a living, walking temple where heaven and earth meet. And this woman, having heard this this message of good news and having, against all odds, believed it in her heart, she comes out of responsiveness and loving kindness to Jesus. And overwhelmingly, she responds to him in just this cathartic kind of unplanned response that is so profoundly intimate and yet deeply, deeply moving and real. Jesus turns to her and declares God's love and life present to her. Her faith has made her well. You see... John goes on and he says, the law, all of God's good governance and order that was given to Moses. I tell you this, we saw God's grace and truth through this person, Jesus. His loving kindness and his goodness and his, his faithfulness throughout the generations have been visibly manifest through his son, Jesus, and we have seen him. I tell you this, John writes, nobody has ever seen God, but the only begotten God who is intimately close to the Father has brought him to light. John would say that as Jesus that I've discovered isn't a Jesus who you can't approach because he's so other than you. No, this is the Jesus who has been in flesh, God incarnate, that actually comes to you and his arms are open wide. That is his posture to the world. What is a holy good God going to do with a world gone awry? He's going to transform human hearts by coming in human flesh. God who is high reaches low that human beings can be brought high themselves. And that is good news. One of the things I love about airports <laughs> is not the departures lounge, but the arrivals. You see, at the arrivals, there's lots of smiles. At the departures, there's lots of tears. Have you noticed that? When I left 10 months ago, there were some of my own tears. But oh, I loved the arrivals. I remember many years ago when my kids were young, going to India with new community here for three weeks. Longest I'd ever been away from my family. Oh, I miss them. I remember coming back to the airport and there was loads and loads of people all lined up. Not for me, <laughs> but for all the other people on the aircraft. But I remember weaving my way through the crowd and looking for my family and there was one of my kids and, and, and she began to jump through the people because she had seen me too. And as we were connecting in that moment, I kind of knelt down and I put my arms out like this. And I still remember it vividly today as she's jumping through and could see me. And she just was getting so close. And then, boom, biggest hug you could ever imagine. That's what Jesus' posture is to the world. So different to just a few months later, um, a few months ago, um, I arrived from Edinburgh after 10 months away and my plane landed 
And, and I walked out of the airport and had to wait for half an hour hoping people would come and pick me up. <laughs> Boy, how life changes. <laughs> uh, okay, all right. I'm afraid we don't take any heckling from the front row. I've forgotten the whole story. This story is expedient for me right now. <laughs> you see, what I've discovered is that if that's God posture to us in human flesh, that is good news. That is profoundly good news for the world. You see, he says to Moses these words, Do not worship any other God For the Lord whose name is Jealous is a jealous God. Wow. You see, don't worship other gods because you get remade in their image. But I tell you this, when you worship the living God who gives life and who's generous and who is kind, he transforms you from the inside out and he makes you shine. The band's going to come up in a moment and they're going to sing a song, create some space for us to connect. And with that, I want you to think about this idea of God being a jealous God. See, this isn't the kind of jealousy that, that, well, you have something and God needs it, so he's jealous of it. It's not like you are better at something and... You're jealous of someone else because they're better at something than you. Or maybe they got a better mark than you. And so you're jealous of them because they got a better mark. Or maybe someone's purchased a new car and you're jealous of them because they have a new car. Or they have something that you really want and so you're jealous of them because of it. That's not the kind of jealousy that God's talking about here. He's not jealous of you as though you have something he needs. You see, he's jealous for you. From the creation, from the beginning of time, God has wanted to dwell among human beings. Not because he has to. We don't quite understand why. It's because he wants to. This is profoundly, profoundly The creator, the other God, the one who is so unlike us would condescend and bring himself down low to be with us so that we could be with him. Who was mocked, who was spat upon, who was beaten, who was crucified so that he would give his life to deal with the two problems of mortality. He gives eternal life. And a transformed heart, washed clean, morality. So we could dwell with him and he could dwell with us. He is intensely jealous, not of you, but for you. So we've been talking about sacred space. Because I believe we shine better when we cultivate God's presence 
in our life. And he came to earth to make that possible. Up close, personal, present. So I don't want to tell you to spend time with God. You should and you must. I want to flip it. Why wouldn't you want to? I mean, if that's his intense jealousy for you, if you went to that extreme, that length, that depth, that's the message I think I want Marunda to know. So on your seat right now, there's a little flyer, there's a little card. Everyone has one. It's got a map on the back. I'd like to activate you this morning in this space as you're thinking about these things. And I'd like to ask you, next week, we want to try and activate you. That you might write down your name and say, we're trying to seek if people would give one hour to go and pray in different parts of Marunda. And the prayer isn't anything more than just saying, God, we pray that you and your presence would become more manifestly real here in this space in Marunda. Your love, intense love and jealousy and kindness and goodness. And what we'd love you to do, I'd love you to do right now is name where and when and keep this and place it under the seat so that we can map this out. And the next week we release 300 people or more to actually go out into different places, whether it be around footy ovals or in cafes or in restaurants or as you walk and just say, this is where I'm praying. And when you, if you sign this up and you give us your details, Ali's going to send to you some, some structure and some insight as to how to organize this. But for now, God might speak to you. How? Where? When? You might take time to sit and pray and say, God, if you were that jealous for me and jealous for Marunda, I want to spend an hour praying that that might be manifestly real, not just for me, but for others. That we lift the temperature in our city. We lift the temperature. So as Cindy sings this song now, I'd invite you to not only cultivate your own sacred space here, but to act. Where God prompts you to go, will you go? Will you take that time? Pray those things, not just for yourself, but for our great city.